This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Doing fantastic today, Tim. After we spoke with our guest, we became a little bit smarter, a little bit more aware of crime and crime prevention. Hope everyone out there is doing just as well as I'm doing. And Tim, I don't want to prevent you from telling us how you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. I am doing great here today. Thanks a lot for asking. And yeah, we have a fantastic guest today. His name is Michael Arntfield, and he is from Canada and he's written books and he's on TV and he spent about an hour with us. He also is on the board of directors at the Murder Accountability Project and you can check out what they're doing at murderdata.org. It's already been a resource that we have used here at Crawlspace Media for years. Make sure to check that out, but also check out his books. We speak a little bit about one of his books called Murder City. We also speak about his latest book, How to Solve a Cold Case, which I'm currently listening to and it's great so far Lance. He really is a great writer and although he is a criminologist, a professor at the University of Western Ontario, a London police officer for 15 years where he served as an officer and a detective, he's been utilized as an expert on numerous networks including the Peacock Network, ID Discovery, A&E, HBO, the Oxygen Network, the list goes on and on. And I have to say I was a little surprised at how intimidated he was by us. It took a little while for him to get the jitters out, I feel. Well, I'm not sure if you're... I That wasn't the read I had on it. Oh, okay. But anyway, he is great. Make sure you check out his books, and I hope you uh, you really enjoy this conversation with Mr. Michael Arnfield. And before we get to Michael, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. Stick around. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, author Michael Arntfield. How are you today? Good. Good to see you guys. Glad we could uh, make this work out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, We had reached out to you a few weeks ago, and you were busy, and you said circle back. And for the first time in my life, I paid attention to a notification that I had set weeks ago to circle back with you. You're traveling. You took time out of your day to join us. Thank you. Thank you. And for those who don't know who you are, would you mind um, giving a little bit of your background? Okay, so uh, I was a police officer and detective in Canada for just over 15 years, uh, during which time I got a PhD in criminology and uh, published some some research. Uh, I'm now a tenured professor at Western University. I've published 12 books and several dozen peer-reviewed journal articles and encyclopedias. I'm on TV fairly regularly, Discovery ID, Oxygen, uh, Peacock, the NBC streamer, uh, regarding some true crime series. I'm a director of the Murder Accountability Project in Washington, D.C., which is 
absolutely fascinating work we're doing. Uh, your listeners can check it out at murderdata.org. We built the most comprehensive homicide data set in North America. It is publicly searchable for researchers and for investigators. Uh, I've got my own podcast called Suspect Zero, a co-host with uh, a true crime teacher in the U.S. there, and uh, I have some other stuff sort of on the go. That's That's sort of the short version, boys. This is exactly what I was talking about because an article popped up sort of on my news cycle, I guess, where it mentioned the serial killer capital of the world, which was in, is in Canada or was in Canada. And you wrote the book Murder City, which is about this. But then you find out about the Murder Accountability Project, which has been a resource for us and some of our colleagues for a long time. So just those two things alone, very just super impressive. Yeah, thanks. We're we're very proud of. Uh, well, I'm proud of both accomplishments, but um, the the Murder Accountability Project is is really absolutely extraordinary. And what we've been able to do, in fact, to tie all this sort of together, cold cases, murder data, big data projects, is um, we got the buy in, the bipartisan buy in of um, both uh, Republican and Democratic Congress people during uh, Trump's time in office. And we tabled, we had them or asked them or lobbied them to table a bill, a bipartisan bill called the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act, uh, which sort of died on the floor and dies with each sort of presidential administration, but has since been revivified under Biden and is now passed into federal law in the United States, uh, whereby if a case goes cold for the prescribed period, the families of the victims they're not getting anywhere with law enforcement can bring a motion in court to have law enforcement by judge's order open up the files of that case to a third of an approved third party agency whether that be a investigative journalist whether that be a sanctioned group like the vdoc society or the n8 group in in the uk or the murder accountability project for that matter um so this is this offers a, opens a new lane of accountability and a, and i think um dialogue with stakeholders broadly defined because as we've seen that murder accountability or map as we call it i mean some of these cities have cases dozens of connected cases presumptively connected cases that have seen no action in years if not decades so it's it's time that you know somebody else get a get a crack at these where does your inspiration to to do this come from i guess it, it goes back to being a cop and not liking things unresolved um Obviously, I, I, I took an interest in the cold cases in the London, Ontario, uh, in Canada region, where I was a police officer. Uh, and during the early portions of my career, there was a cold case task force underway that really sort of uh, let the rank and file know about what had happened in the past. And these are the cases ultimately tabulated in, in, in Murder City. But it wasn't for another 15 years before I got access to all of the real sort of primary source materials, which were the original investigators from the 60s and 70s notes um, and, and and stuff that uh, presumably was available to the original investigators on this task force, but which had never really been consolidated in one place before, subjected to sort of the analysis that I put it through from a, from a criminological perspective, knowing that a lot of these offenders who weren't caught are presumed dead or known to be dead and that there won't be any official closure in the traditional sense in terms of an arrest announced, but that there can still be answers. And ultimately, that's what we're seeing more and more people want is, is just sort of uh, an answer, not necessarily uh, a day in court. And with your work, I guess, across the borders 
between the United States and Canada, what are some of the differences in how an investigation is run between the, the two the two nations? Great question. So the adequacy standards, at least on paper, are largely identical between uh, both Canada and the U.S. Both Canada and the U.S. until recently have relied on what's known as the Uniform Crime Reporting or UCR system, which is a standard uh, fixed choice menu of basically how to walk police through an investigation. These are the things you're looking for. These are the things you have to report back to the government. Um, in Canada, it's required. In the U.S., it's 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 um, discretionary. So we see only about half the, of the departments have been reporting. And that's what we do at MAP is go out and then find the missing annual homicide reports. That's changing a bit. Uh, many U.S. agencies are moving to a more sophisticated system known as national incident-based reporting, which is going to create some problems. Uh, and both Canada and the U.S., are hobbled by the same issues that that leave a lot of cases. In fact, in 2020, records set in both countries in terms of uh, the total number of unresolved or uncleared uh, homicides. In the U.S., it's a coin toss, just a little over 50% nationally are solved or cleared. Uh, and I don't mean someone convicted and incarcerated. I, I mean, a, a suspect even ever identified. Um, in Canada, it's a little bit better. We don't have as many homicides. Some cities have close to as many per capita, um, but we're around sort of 65%. Uh, the main difference between the two is in the US, um, and you guys are, are investigators and journalists, you'll know this, uh, freedom of information legislation is taken seriously. This is what we rely on at Murder Accountability to get access to these records. Uh, in Canada, it's, it's a big joke. Um, they'll find a, a way to deny access to this information uh, even to homicide scholars such as myself. So I've tried to build a murder accountability project Canada, and I've tried to scrape some of the basic granular level case information that you see in, in the hundreds of thousands at murderdata.org. And I've been denied outright under the pretext that even though all of these murders are, are, are stripped of identifying information, that if I were to publish or make available all these tens of thousands of murders, somebody could hunt and peck and based on the date and based on the cause of death, go and identify who the victim was. And therefore, by publishing that uh, or allowing that to be published, the federal government is breaching that that decedence or that murder victim's privacy, if you can believe that nonsense. So this, this is what we're dealing with up here, it's pushing a boulder up a hill just to try to get some public accountability, whereas in the U.S., good or bad or otherwise, you can't hide these investigative steps or missteps that the police take. And, and it's for that reason that we're able to to build out this massive resource. That's a huge undertaking. And Tim asked a question that mine is going to be a little bit similar, but I'm going to go further back in your past. He, he said, what I guess to the effect of what's what's your drive? And, and you had said that being a police officer, you don't like seeing things unresolved. Was there something that happened even further back in your life that was unresolved that that you that you put into your work well there's sort of a multiplicity of, of things interacting so before i was a police officer as a child um one of the cases that ended up being the subject of that task force um in the late 90s and then ultimately one of the key cases i examined in murder city uh was the kidnapping and murder of a nine-year-old boy in the neighborhood where i grew up and it was never solved is before my time, but I walked the same path to school as as he took. We went to different schools, but in a, in a weird 
set of logistics. I had to walk to his school to catch a bus to my school because it was a, a sort of there was limited enrollment in the school. So I, I had to walk to the school he t- went to and walked his same path because he, he had he lived would have been my neighbor. So this became a local boogeyman story and an otherwise pretty sedate, uh, you know, middle class um, Canadian Main Street neighborhood and uh, classic suburbia. And the fact that he was never caught led obviously every family and every kid to wonder, you know, is this person still out there? Are they still living in the neighborhood? It was ultimately years later that I realized, in fact, he moved out shortly after that, but he had other victims, not in that immediate area, but there's little question who did it. And, and this information now is was made available by dint of these notes, whereby his name was never publicly released, but he was doggedly pursued by the lead investigator in the 60s through to the early 70s and ultimately left town to, to shake this guy off. And now we see that there's other victims in the in the city where he moved next that we, maybe they're linked to him, maybe not, but certainly the MO matches. Um and this is all information that would have been nice, nice to know years earlier, obviously. But such is the is the nature of cold cases in that they they take on a life of their own and a certain lore of their own when people aren't aren't, aren't provided with with any information, including. Uh, and we're seeing this more and more, especially with cold cases. Police aren't necessarily releasing the name of the offender, but they'll they'll at least allay the public and say the person of interest in these cases X Y Z is now deceased. Um, so you can rest easy, which is a bit of a cryptic way of doing it. But I can think off the top of my head, three cases in the last sort of 24 months that have used that that way of trying to assure the public without compromising the sort of secrecy and integrity of the investigation. Why aren't more cases solved? Yeah, great question. So if you look at the graph at murderdata.org, you can look at since the implementation of the Uniform Crime Reporting System in 1929, um, it has been the, the, the clearance rate, as we call it, has been steadily declining. And then there's a couple of years where it drops off a cliff. So, I mean, the, the, the decline is precipitous, but is consistent. And then all of a sudden it's, it, it's very sharp. 2016 was a key year. 2020 was another key year. Uh, and nobody really knows why. I mean, some cynics would say, well, a lot of these clearances back in the forties and fifties were probably wrongfully accused people or, or, or what, however, there were, there were fewer murders. So they were solving more of them. Um, the latter may be true. I mean, are these all accounted for by bad clearances, by by, by wrongful convictions? I, I, I very much doubt that. Um, the difference between then and now is we see that uh, murder just isn't a priority for many law enforcement agencies out of necessity. I mean, when you I'm not going to advertise some of these cities, but when you you have, you know, 18 shootings a weekend, um, last week's case goes cold pretty quickly. And we see that a lot of major cities are actually dragging down the overall national average. So the national average in the U.S. is a little better than than 50 percent. But I mean, some cities is 28, 30 percent. So three in 10 get solved. Seven in 10 killers never end up on police radar. So that has a, a cumulative effect coast to coast when you've got major cities clocking those types of poor numbers. Another theory that's been floated is beyond the fact that there's not a lot of resources uh, and not a lot of cooperation, quite frankly, in some communities with police, is that there's become an, an over-reliance on forensic methodologies like DNA to the extent that um, traditional uh, sort of shoe leather police techniques, knocking on doors, interviewing people, assembling circumstantial cases, which is how cases got solved for most of modern police work, 
that those skills have been numbed. And in, you know, unless there's a ballistics hit or a DNA hit, they sort of are out of their depth and they'll just sort of put it on a shelf and wait for a, a match to come back from the lab one day. And in the meantime, work the low hanging fruit cases, which are the ones with DNA. And in the meantime, you've got all these ones accumulating. So it's an interesting theory to, to consider. On the Murder Accountability Project website, there is a link for murder clusters. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? What is a murder cluster? So great question. So we've got, give or take, 750,000 homicides in the data bank. Uh, we're in the midst of, of getting further previously never reported murders from the federal government that has been in violation of its own law since 1989. So the NCIS, the FBI, the Department of the Interior, which looks after Bureau of Indian Affairs and, and, and uh, the National Park Service, none of these agencies have ever reported the murders they investigate back to themselves or back to the federal government. So we're, we're, we're getting that now. So our, our database will grow significantly. But what we've done for now, and we will continue to do, is we built an algorithm that essentially looks for commonalities in MO between two or more uncleared homicides in a census metropolitan area. So that could include a county or a city, again, uh, the, the mega city, the census metropolitan area. And it relies on a number of points of analysis that, that simulates what's known as the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, which is a much larger complex system used by the FBI to track patterns or, or, or linkages in murders uh, between states. We don't have the ability to look coast to coast and match a, a potential case in Maine to a, to a case in New Mexico, but we can look as large, as, as wide as a specific county. And these clusters are two or more open homicides that have compelling linkages as identified uh, through our software. And there's some notable ones. We alert police agencies in these areas of the existence of the cluster, uh, and we've had mixed results. There's a task force in Chicago right now. It's the subject of a documentary on ID called The Hunt for the Chicago Strangler, uh, looking into 51 connected strangulation murders since 2000 that our software identified. Uh, we identified two other patterns in Cleveland, Ohio, that uh, again, action to task force led to an arrest only one charge was ever laid, a brutal charge, but we're satisfied this individual is responsible for many more crimes, and they've since stopped. In Gary, Indiana, which was the first cluster identified, uh, they largely ignored uh, the pleas of our chairman, Tom Hargrove, outright, um, said, you know, we don't have a serial killer problem. This is junk science. And then lo and behold, a short time later, Darren Dion Van was arrested in a neighboring community and confessed to all the murders, or most of the murders, in Gary, Indiana, identified by our software and took police around to where the bodies were located of other cases um, or showed them what he had, what he had done. And, and again, it's consistent with, with what we had found. So had they listened to us, and mind you, this is the first example of the algorithm being used in real time. You know, several other women likely, including his final victim, who was murdered in a neighboring community of Hammond, Illinois, would still be alive today. Wow. And how many murders make a cluster? Two or more. So that's consistent with um, the accepted definition of serial homicide, which is two or more victims in separate occurrences at separate times and places. The FBI's official definition still is three or more. Uh, and that's in U.S. code, uh, largely to justify bringing them in. 
again, most investigators, so that's a bureaucratic definition, whereas an operational and a criminological definition is, is two or more. You don't need to wait for the third for a, a pattern to be deemed to be established. Right. So if the, if I'm looking at the map and there's a cluster of, say, like five or, or six um, unsolved, it looks like the, it's fair to say that there's there's a killer there or there could be. So this is part of what my it's it, it's a pr presumptively compelling to the extent that what my students now do in my cold case research group at, at Western is because the algorithm is only dealing with basic uh, zeros and ones. It's just data. It's, it's just looking for what has been recorded by police in terms of weapon use, in terms of age of the victim, in terms of uh, potential motive. So my students then will go and find more uh, qualitative data to to either screen that in as, as a confirmed set of linkages or a false positive, screen it out. So we'll go and we'll pull media reports. Uh, we'll find out if, if, in fact, what's been reported uh, to the Justice Department by the police agency in question is accurate. Because um, there is some inaccuracies. We see a lot of inaccuracies in terms of coding the ethnicity of the victim, for instance. We see a lot of inaccuracies um, in terms of weapon or, or cause of death, even, or what we'll call manner of death. So cause of death could be any number of, of obviously, sources of trauma. But manner of death is, is either homicide, suicide, accident, natural, or undetermined. So we'll see a lot of undetermines meaning police coroner or medical examiner aren't really sure uh, that should probably have been reported as, as, as homicides. And that's a whole other issue entirely that we track, which is uh, concealed or missing murders, of which there's about 2,500 a year in the U.S. Wow. Really interesting stuff. And um, I, I guess, how, how do you enter things to the algorithm? Do you, do you have like, uh, there's like 10 markers or something that you, you upload from articles? Uh, not from articles, directly from Uniform Crime Report reports, to uh, which, which contain all that information. It has to contain ethnicity of the victim, age of the victim, weapon, motive if known or suspected, date, gender, obviously. So that's what we have to work with. Violent crime, criminal uh, apprehension program or VICAP has 300 and something points. So they get a lot of missed and just filling out those forms among law enforcement is onerous to the point many just don't do it. So uh, there's blind spots all over the country. Our philosophy is you don't need 300 data points. You need to have six to at least get the ball rolling. Um, I mean, VICAP gets into a very esoteric uh, details that, quite frankly, most detectives don't have the experience or training to even properly identify in the form. Um, so, I mean, our, our objective is keep it simple, cast a wider net. Are we going to get some false positives? Yes. Uh, do we have the resources to begin screening out those false positives and at least drilling down into the ones that look like Chicago uh, that are largely irrefutable? Absolutely. Because VICAP didn't identify Chicago. We identified Chicago. And when do you sleep? <laughs> yeah, while I'm driving. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. But okay, let's talk about London, Ontario. And you've written a number of books. And one of your books is called Murder City. And it is about London, Ontario. What is it about this place that has made it sort of renowned as the serial killer capital of the world? 
Well, it's not really renowned. I, I stumbled across that again once I started putting together the original source materials uh, provided to me by the son of the deceased detective who basically left, left them as a time capsule and said, like, I don't have the resources. I don't know what we were dealing with back then, but someday somebody will. Uh, and they made their way to me and I synthesized all this data and, and compared everything. And, and many of these crimes that I knew had happened, I'd heard about them as a cop, they turn out to have been investigated as sexual homicides in the work of a serial killer. And that never really was, was made public. And once you start tabulating all of these and siloing them off by either a known offender, incarcerated, convicted offender, or suspected linkages to an unsub, still at large, uh, you basically got nine separate offenders operating in a bedroom community of 100,000 people. In many cases, concurrently, in some cases, consecutively, but at, at, at any given time, the serial killer to civilian population is per capita uh, greater than any other city that I can find, at least in the G7, that, that, that keeps reliable data. Um, so based on the available data, there's just no refuting that for 25 years, this otherwise unremarkable, what they called the forest city, had a major serial killer problem. And there's all kinds of theories as to why. It sort of was the ideal operating ground for, for serial offenders for a number of reasons. One, uh, it was one of the first outpost cities, first main sort of destination cities along the main highway system in, in much of urban Canada, which predates the U.S. interstate system by four years. And we know the, the drastic effect that interstate offending has had on communities and, and how serial killers have exploited the U.S. interstate to the point to the extent that there's an FBI task force still looking at that. Well, we were living that reality years earlier than Americans. This is the one area where. Uh, Canadians were actually a, uh, ahead of the curve, ahead of Americans in terms of developing this type of infrastructure. And with that came sexual deviants who were marooned in weird rural counties all over the place, now able to come to a city with a stock pond of victims, a college, a university, uh, many young people, uh, a fall fair, all kinds of, of what we call crime attractors for, for motivated serial offenders. The, the other variables include the fact that uh, it was a city where um, uh, nobody wanted to talk about what actually happened there. It was a, a very, the hubris and, and I guess, pride of the city uh, was impregnable. And no one was prepared to talk about what the school principal was up to, what happens at this particular church, what happens at this particular variety store, the Stanley Variety, which is discussed in the book. I mean, it was essentially a, a, a dead letter drop for uh, child pornography. Uh, they would they would assemble there for screenings of, of, of underage exploited uh, uh, films, exploiting children. So it's not a surprise that one of the teenage clerks there ends up murdered in a very ritualistic fashion by somebody drawn there because they weren't really relying on... Um, confections and cigarettes to sell it was it was cover for for something else so but nobody wanted to talk about that uh and the third reason is and it may just be an interesting coincidence but london was uh one of canada's two first consumer test market cities so a lot of products actually that even americans take for granted now uh certain coffee blends uh atm banking failed brands at major fast food outlets were beta tested in London because demographers and advertisers knew that the city was so, uh, there was such what we call demographic segmentation in the city. 
X number of retirees, X number of people on social assistance, X number of people who are students, X number of people who are affluent, X number of people who are passing through. And they realized that the city was a microcosm of their entire target market. And that there was very little cross-pollination between these groups because of that siloed effect of the city. So if you wanted to test a, a weird, again, sandwich out of fast food out that London would be the place to do it. Because if, if you could make it there, any market in the, in the country would it, it would work. So it's just a weird coincidence that you have London as a destination city for demographers and advertisers to test new products because of its um, balkanized social balkanization, you could call it. And for the same reason, serial killers thrive in that environment. It's I mean the two have to be correlated. It's incredibly fascinating, and when you are looking into this and you make the decision that you're going to write a book and do a lot of research on it, this is a 25-year period from 1959 to 1984. So who's the first person someone like yourself will reach out to to get the most accurate information possible? Uh, well, uh, when you have, again, primary source material, so talking to people is what we would call from a research perspective, unless this is somebody who's lived experience or they're a direct eyewitness, they're typically secondary sources, people who have heard things, uh, people who have done their own research and have insight, uh, but they're not the original unfettered uh, source material. In this case, the, the original true primary source, Dennis Alsop, the detective who's, who shouldered most of these of these 29 murder cases in one way or another, is deceased. So the next best thing is are his contemporaneous notes, as we say, his diary entries, his duty book logs his teletypes to other police agencies asking for help, reports that drawn up for the senior brass asking for more time and, and detailing who all the killers are and, and who all the victims are and how they're connected, using, again, the limited terminology of the time. This is before we understood really even what uh, what made these people tick, but he's grappling with the, the, the best lang clinical language that he can to try to raise... The, you know, the alarm with the, his superiors that this is not just business as usual. These are not just personal cause homicides. They've got, um, you know, what to use his words, a, 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 a sexual psychopath, which to to see that show up in, in a police report of 1968 is like 20 years ahead of its time. And it's interesting. So he's talking to the right people. And these are some of the people who were living that I would then follow up with, one of whom, unfortunately, is not still alive, and I would have liked to talk to, was a professor of theology at the university where I am now, uh, who was deemed in the in the day to be something of an expert on uh, occultism uh, and, um, I guess, demonology. And he was consulted, if you can imagine this today, by a senior police detective because of the ritual nature of some of these child murders, asking, showing him photos saying, like, are we dealing with a satanic cult in London? Are these, is there a, a disordered sort of black mass sacrificial nature to some of these crimes? Because they were highly ritual and hadn't been really seen before in Canada. And again, now we know, looking at other similar cases, we have, again, the toolbox to make sense of these, but they had absolutely no frame of reference at the time. So he ends up going to somebody uh, almost straight out of, um, I mean, William Freakin's The Exorcist uh, or the Blatty novel before that, like he, just out of desperation. Wow. And uh, how many serial killers were operating in London? At least nine. 
uh, six confirmed based on arrests. Uh, one identified posthumously through DNA. He was already dead and buried. They exhumed him. Uh, but at least another three who offended either twice in London or I'm absolutely certain began in London and continued their crimes elsewhere. And at least one of these, or two of them, I'm sorry, uh, one from 1968, one from 1956. So before actually this problem began. So this is sort of the bellwether murder that began the trend in 1956, the murder of a six-year-old girl. Both have DNA and rich DNA samples, and they are prime candidates for genomics or what we call uh, genealogical forensics in that since the DNA data bank, which is identical to the one in the US, we use the same software called CODIS. Since it went online in 99, 94 in the US, uh, there's been no match, meaning that the offender has never been processed into the system to make a match to the crime scene samples. So this is where genomics comes in. Instead of looking at just convicted offenders, let's look at the entire population through their family trees. And I'm confident that both these cases can be solved. And, and my theory is proven correct pretty quickly if, if the police were so inclined. And of these serial killers that were active during this time, I mean, all of their crimes are tragic and, and heinous. But were there ones that you were researching that just stood out as particularly depraved? Well, they all are. But uh, I mean, there's there, there's three um, sets that are particularly disturbing uh, one involves transportation of, of the victims for long distances post-mortem uh, and then elaborately concealing their bodies, which is, uh, is correlated strongly with sadism. There's a great deal of satisfaction that the offender gets from depriving the family of an answer and a burial. Um, he likely went back there and looked upon his work. And uh, in, in at least one case, it looks like he took a trophy in the way of her arm. Um and returns to the crime scenes in many cases to leave shrines at the crime scenes or taunts the family. Uh, so that, that's one set. Uh, there's another set involving the murder of young boys where there's, a, again, a very ritualistic... These, these are the ones that the detective consulted the, the, uh, the professor about. There's a very ritualistic, and I'm not going to get into it, but something done in terms of uh, their being undressed and redressed and then... Uh, buried in the water or disposed of in the water that, that clearly has some symbolism and is linked to at least one other crime elsewhere uh, committed by a separate offender who's now out on parole. And so these two somehow concocted, it's not a coincidence, they were both around the same age, uh, they both operated within an hour of each other, uh, and th there's some significance to what's being done to these victims that I it's, it's bothered me that I can never get an answer to it. And it, it may be something only that makes sense to the, these twisted freaks that do this. Um, but at least it would be a start in terms of studying and, 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 and analyzing these people. So you're saying two killers had similar circumstances in, with their victims and they also used the same water uh, source. And you're saying you think those two killers somehow knew each other or were aware of each other's work not only aware of each other's work, but the, what was done to, uh, so the first two boys were killed in 1968. Uh, well, the one offender was in prison. He's then, he had a life sentence for trying to kidnap and uh, murder a teenage girl. He's paroled out very quickly, targets of a young boy. So now he's changed his preferred victim and does precisely the same thing that was done in 1968. That information was never made public. And as far as I know, post-1968, these two people never had contact. So the contact is pre-68 when they both 
perhaps had a common abuser uh, experienced or observed something that that had a, an indelible effect on both of them, and then they went out and, and began offending separately, but using precisely the same, not only MO, but signature. So something unique and idiosyncratic that has an emotional or sexual um, as a source of excitement for the offender, but that has no value added to the crime itself. And so for two people to share that, that, that delusion essentially, and not be operating in tandem, because we do know about 40% of serial sexual murders have, a, have, a, have an accessory, uh, but they were either not alive or not in the same city or in jail and out of jail separately and never offended together as far as we're aware. So the question is what, what is the common origin of, of that of that ritual? It's just sort of a side question out of curiosity. Do you write criminal profiles for law enforcement? Uh, yes and no, not officially for law enforcement. We have been, my group uh, has been approached, obviously, um, by law enforcement as well as families. So and this is sort of where the idea of the Homicide Victims Families right, that Rights Act came into uh, or where I hatched it. And then the people at MAP had the same idea essentially to to provide analytical reports, uh, letting them know if they're on the right track or not. Uh, so for law enforcement, your listeners might not know this, but this is a main difference, I guess, to rewind back to the beginning. In Canada, police operate autonomously, completely autonomously. They do not take direction from our equivalent of the district attorney, who's an appointed prosecutor. They, they are not elected they take a, an arm's length approach to police investigations. Once charges are laid, they ultimately decide whether or not you know they're going to move forward with this. They're going to make you know action this out for a plea deal. The position they're going to take, um, so that they are not seen as directing the police. In the U.S., there is a much more of a hand in glove relationship, particularly in some municipalities. So we'll field uh, requests sometimes to review confidential packages basically prepared by police to present to the filing DA basically. But so they want to charge someone with multiple murders. They can't just do that and, and hope for the best. They, they would need to consult with the, the, the district attorney who decides at his or her discretion, whether or not these charges are merited at this time. And we'll basically provide peer review for, for the quality of their work and whether or not their proposed linkages uh, make sense based on the literature and, and based on other cases. And in the case of families, often we'll, we'll produce reports, and this is in my latest book, How to Solve the Cold Case, that they can bring actually to coroners or to medical examiners uh, to lobby them to reopen cases closed either as accidents, suicides, or undetermined deaths, basically, whereby we'll say, based on the preponderance of evidence and, and, and these peer-reviewed studies, this should be deemed to be foul play until proven otherwise. And a snap judgment was made 10 years ago and the family has been trying to get answers and they don't through police. So let's work around that and, and go directly to the people who maintain death records, which are uh, coroners, quite frankly. And in the United States, Centers for Disease Control, which obtains mortality data on, on every individual living in the United States. And, and when we compare those to police records of homicides, like I mentioned, there's a shortfall of around 2,500 to 3,000 annually, and the records never get married up. It's not as though a body goes for, for an autopsy and it's been already ruled an accident. The, the medical examiner or the pathologist, days later when wounds materialize because of the way the blood settles in the body, realizes, oh, in fact, this is suspicious and needs to be coded as a homicide. They don't get on the phone to the police department and say, you need to reopen this as a homicide. 
they file with the CDC, the police file with the uh, Justice Department, and never do the two records meet again, other than through us at, at Matt. Wow. Did, did you say that 40% of serial killers have an accomplice? Approximately. Yeah, this has been well studied by a mentor of mine named Dr. Eric Hickey, who if you've seen the Dahmer uh, series, the Jeffrey Dahmer series on Netflix, they'll talk at the end about his brain being in the custody of faculty at CSU Fresno. He is the one who had custody of the brain and, and, and conducted many, many interviews with Dahmer. We learned a great deal about homicidal necrophiles from those interviews uh, to the extent that we catch them faster now. And, and those interviews have probably saved lives. So uh, he studied rigorously um, the practices and associations among serial offenders. And, and, and we see that yeah, somewhere between three uh, and, and four in 10 during at least one of their crimes have a direct accessory, whether it be a lure to, to, uh, to you know, draw in children or, or other women, someone who helps them to dispose of the body or someone who partakes uh, in the actual crime, not necessarily the, the primary crime scene or the abduction, but certainly uh, once the victim is is confined that, um, you know, they're prepared to to commit these atrocities as well. And they're broken down. He's even broken them down by relationships. So male-led teens, you know, what's the nature of the relationship? Cousins, co-workers, nephews and, and uncles, uh, female-dominant teens, which are more rare, but this would be sort of your your murders on the Moor scenario with Myra Hindley and Ian Moore, or arguably Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo here in Canada, which is a more recent case. But um, yeah, he's broken them down demographically and, and, and in terms of the, the interpersonal dynamics of the relationship. It's quite fascinating. Wow. And is that uh, willing participants only? Precisely. Or uh, again, presumptive data that can be gleaned. Like, so information deemed reliable based on court records. So if someone says, you know, provides state's evidence and pleads guilty and and, and and sends their accomplice up the river, you know, you don't necessarily need an in-depth interview with them. The nature of the relationship has been established uh, and the, the the nature of their collusion has been established on record in court. It's a bit unnerving to think about those statistics. Well, it is. And the question is, how do these people find each other? And especially if you have you have a very... Uh, disturbed set of proclivities for you to just raise this with somebody. I mean, a lot of these unfortunately materialize organically during, again, abusive dysfunctional relationships between, again, uh, males and females. And uh, ultimately, they, f they figure out that they have sort of the same sadistic verve, the toolbox killers. I mean, there's an example of, of, of two sadistic sexual psychopaths who happen to meet in, in prison in the joint and um, I mean, it's just bad fate, I guess, because ultimately their their decision then is once they both get out, they're going to reconnect on the outside. This is pre-internet. Um, and then as their their moniker denotes, committed just absolutely horrible things to people. Uh, you have to ask yourself now in a digital age, how much easier is it for these people to connect? Yeah, seriously. That is a, a terrifying thought, no doubt. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. And uh, your newest book, How to Solve a Cold Case and Everything Else You Wanted to Know About Catching Killers. I'm listening to it now. It's excellent. 
in the intro, you mention uh, a man who is you're related to, uh, Samuel Gray. And then, you, yeah, and then you started uh, talking about the killer gene and wondering if that's something that you could have too. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Well, I'm satisfied I don't, but uh, it's, I mean, certainly he likely did. And, and again, whether or not that's a recessive gene that eventually comes and goes depending on generations. I mean, there is, and this is to go back to Dahmer again, uh, there is an improved understanding of the physiological and genetic hardwiring of, of, of people who commit these crimes. I mean, it, a lot of it is explained environmentally. As I explained in the book, many of these offenders had certain common characteristics in their childhood uh, that certainly had a, a formative effect on their on their willingness to, to commit these crimes and on a disordered relationship between intimacy and, and violence and humiliation. But there's also uh, people who endured those conditions and, and don't commit these crimes. So I, th I think we're looking at a little bit of column A, column B. The interesting story about Sam Gray is that again, if you want to talk about genes, I mean, a few generations later, uh, I'm descended from this person and I'm doing exactly the opposite and I'm using whatever inherited knowledge there may be. We only understand, we're just getting to understand the true nature of, of acquired and inherited knowledge now, but um, I'm using it to try to catch these people and to help law enforcement catch these people. So it's just a, an interesting, ironic twist. And then was a, a sort of, a, a jump off point to uh, in that introduction section, a, a bunch of interesting stories that you wouldn't think are connected. Um, but that sort of is the nature of the book is um, a series of vignettes connected in terms of letting people know that everything they think they know, I think about this stuff has largely been misguided. And to circle back on London, Ontario, I've, I guess a two part question that must really do something to the, makeup and the fabric of that community. And I'm curious how they're doing today. And also, have you taken those attributes from London, Ontario, and seen them in other places that could have potential nowadays to be a serial killer capital or hotspot? Yeah. So again, I mentioned this in Murder City. I look at actually, for comparative purposes, some other U.S. consumer test market cities. And again, weird it could be coincidence. Uh, it's not, I mean, purely scientific. You would need to take all, every single one and, I mean, years of work. But just uh, superficially, you look at other consumer test market cities, on the surface, unreliable, not marquee cities, but that are redeemed significant by demographers and advertisers and marketers. Um, and again, really weird trends, including well-known serial killers. And uh, it's just... it. it, it these municipalities have certain common characteristics. Let's just say that. That doesn't mean that they're, they're um, necessarily uh, causal, these underlying, again, demographic, socioeconomic issues, but there's certainly, there's some common characteristics that suggest they have certain things in common. Now, London today obviously has a whole different set of problems, not unlike what you see on the evening news every night. It's an older city, um, that uh, Great Lakes city that has been ravaged by addiction and homelessness and depopulation and at the same time repopulation with people who are just continuing and perpetuating what the earlier issue was. Uh, horizontal urban sprawl uh, writ large, 
interior areas, historical areas, marginalized areas left to, to cave in to the extent that, I mean, I, I don't know what a, what, a, what a prosperous future looks like for much of the city. The one good thing to come out of this period, and again, it's a sign of the times that it's now extinct because I got a combination of indifference and apathy and, and, and I guess technology, but and I don't, you must have some version of this in the U.S., but in, in Canada, it's known as the Block Parent Program. And by the late 60s, these murders of children had become so prevalent, stranger abductions that are incredibly rare statistically, but in London were, were stock in trade, it seems, on a weekly basis. Either near misses, I get emails from people who grew up during this period all the time, near misses, attempted abductions, again, many of which weren't reported because the parents didn't want, you know, I don't didn't want a police cruiser at the house taking a report. So that'd be embarrassing. So better let that person continue to operate in your neighborhood. So Block Parent was a program uh, whereby a, a group of um, basically a, a local service club or a group of local service clubs uh, designed these placards that could be put in the bay window of each house. And if you were as a child were being followed, that sign denoted that there was a parent home, given the, the time, typically the, the, the wife or the mother of the house at home in the day, and you could run there and make unannounced entry to seek sanctuary in that house if you were being followed by, by somebody or someone was trying to get you. So by the 70s, this almost becomes a status symbol whereby uh, the, the homemaker has the sign in a window and is a, is a port in a storm for uh, children being preyed upon. Uh, and it seems to have worked because uh, these these offenders obviously continued to operate, but the number of snatchings on the street of children seemed to drop off. And uh, we'll never know because it wasn't rigorously studied. And, and, and you can't quantify the number of crimes prevented, but it seems to have certainly at least allowed the community to galvanize, recognize there was a, a problem and allow neighbors to start talking to each other again. I have no idea. Do you have any idea, Tim, if something like that exists here? No. That's remarkable. So did I hear that right? So you can put a little notification in your window, and if you're a child and you feel like you're in danger, that can be a safe haven. Yep. So schools would train children as part of, again, you get your school bus safety training. You get your don't talk to strangers training. They're, they're trained as this is the sign to look for. And uh, I mean, when I was a cop, this was still a I started as a cop. This was still a big thing to the to the extent that there was a police officers job, full time job was assigned to screening applicants to be block parents because they would have to go to the house, make sure, OK, this place is this place actually suitable for one or more kids to seek refuge here. What else is good? Who else lives here? Obviously, your standard criminal record check, fingerprint checks, uh, credit checks, stuff like that. Um but there's enough people interested in this program that that was a full-time job was just managing and administering the program. And it was, I mean, a, a tremendous grassroots crime prevention and outreach program. And by I'm ballparking here, but I want to say by 2011, it was, it was maybe 2014. Um, yeah. Because while researching the book in 2014, I was still able to access their archives. So they were still semi operational, but as of 2015, 2016 defunct. Uh, no one interested in doing this stuff anymore. And, you know, do you really need to run to somebody's house when, you know, you've got a smartphone by age nine and you can just call 911 or, uh, or or take their photo. So sign of the times. Yeah, I can see that. I feel like it also has this maybe had this un unintentional community building to it as well. 
Well, it did to the extent that people wanted into the program and uh, and and saw its value. And like I said, it had a certain not that this was, I think, the motive of the original people, but it had a, a, a certain uh, sort of like being your neighborhood watch leader. I guess it, it, it sort of put you it situated you sort of as a as the voice of authority or as a as a role model on your block. And uh, I mean, that kind of social capital in suburbia goes a long way. Not to, again, be cynical about why this program started, but you can see how it grows legs and it becomes uh, something more than, than just a, a, an acute public safety initiative, which is how it began under, under obviously, emergency circumstances. Well, what's next, Michael? What's your, uh, your next book about? Uh, good question. I'm going to let the tide wash over on this latest one. That was a Writing that during the pandemic and going through the editing process during the pandemic was uh, difficult. Um, uh, the conclusion, the epilogue deals with uh, the new face of crime post-pandemic. Uh, and if anything, if there's anything I'm motivated to write now, it's probably a book on that. And that's going to take some time to to begin researching or continue researching. I mean, I've got some ideas, but I'm going to have to, I mean, starting with the, the murder rate in 2020. So... Uh, sky-high homicides in cities that saw 30 years of progress become undone in a matter of months, and the uh, lowest national clearance rate since reliable statistics on this started being kept in 1929. Well, when that book is ready to be promoted, you are more than welcome to come on to talk about it. And I absolutely love the fact that we can work in this industry and know people like yourself who is is so passionate about trying to do the right thing and close these loopholes and tie up the loose ends and bring some sort of closure. But what's equally refreshing to me is how much science you put into it, how much of a, a effort you put into saying, here are the statistics and here's why this happens. And here's, you know, going way back now, here's how, you know, this, this thing started this and getting that history is, I feel really important for the listener because it's not just something that happens in a vacuum in one place. There is a genuine reason why these crimes happen. And if you can get close to that answer, you can get close to maybe preventing them in the future. So it, it comforts me to know that you exist in this world. Uh, well, th- well, thanks. And on the topic of statistics, again, it's, statistics are a double-edged sword. They they can be ta- they should be taken with a grain of salt sometimes. I mean, uh, and that's again where we come along to try to close the loop or tie up loose ends because they are they can be misleading. I, I saw somebody, some charlatan on the news the other day, saying, you know, this is all propaganda about that crime is out of control in America. And in fact, last year there was, you know. Uh, or in these 10 cities, there's fewer murders than there have been recorded in, in the last 20 years. Okay, well, why those 10 cities? Why were those 10 cities cherry picked? Number two, we know that 60% of police departments, if you're relying strictly on uh, FBI data, don't report to the FBI. UCR is a voluntary program. So you should be going to murderdata.org to get your real numbers because everything else is largely a forecast of not a wet, not a historical weather record. It's a forecast of the approximate number of murders. And then we still know that it's not accurate because uh, none of these federal agencies have ever reported their murders back to each other. And we've got two agencies saying, and I won't name them, but let's just say the two most mythologized federal agencies on television who say they can't tell us how many murders they've had because they're still on paper. And in the one case, their records management system, which is based in DOS, you can't search by case type. 
So unless you have a specific file number, you want to call up like an old school library, Dewey Decimal System, uh, they can't just browse for murders in 2020 and, and hand us over a total. So we'll probably never know. So if you're hearing statistics, I would say be wary of your source That's on this topic. That's, that's the only uh, caveat I would add there. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Good. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for uh, spending some time with us here today. We uh, are uh, a bit smarter now, and, uh, and we really appreciate your time and, uh, and work. All right, guys. Thanks for having me on, and good luck with the program. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.